0: Thank you, Nikki. Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we, as we prepare to look into the word together. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to gather as your people. Thank you that you have created us as your body, your family. We represent you, and we thank you that we could spend this time singing to you and acknowledging your greatness and also hearing from you. And, Lord, we admit that we are a thirsty people. We need to hear from you now. So may your word fill our souls. May you open our hearts to hear from you. And may we walk out of here changed because of the time we've spent with you in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I became a Christian at age 17. I was pretty lonely, and when I entered into Fellowship, went to a small church. I found it to be wonderful. It was a place of community and fellowship, and I felt accepted and loved in ways I had never been in that kind of community. It was a wonderful thing. I felt so blessed. But as time went on, over the years, as I've been involved in churches, both pastoring and as part of the church, I've been surprised at the level of conflict. At the level of disagreement, the church I went to was one that happened to be a split off another church, and there were rumblings of that while I was there. My first pastorate, I was there five years, but I ended up leaving in the light of some unresolved conflict with another pastor. It was a very painful, difficult time. And over the years, as I've been in fellowships, I've experienced conflict myself, and I've seen disagreements and difficulty in relationships everywhere I've been. And all of that has been pretty surprising to me, as maybe it has been to you. Um, It doesn't seem to be what the church is supposed to be, right? We're to be a place where the love of God is expressed to one another. And so what's the problem? Someone has described the church as being like Noah's Ark, It stinks, but if you get off it, you'll drown. Okay, we can't live without it. We have to have it. But it's difficult sometimes. We're in the book of Philippians. Rod started last week with an introduction to the book, and we're continuing our study through the book of Philippians. And the church in Philippi we've already seen is a pretty diverse church body. The very first convert was Lydia. We saw that from Acts chapter 16. Rod talked about that. She's a Greek businesswoman. Second convert was the Philippian jailer. He's a Roman soldier. We find in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that the church in Philippi was a very poor church. And therefore, probably it consisted of a number of slaves from the area. It may have been some very poor freedmen that were part of the body there. The whole area of Philippi was a place primarily of retired military vets. And so maybe some of those were part of the body too. So you think about that and you think about the diversity of cultures and people. And we find as we read the book of Philippians, there were women in leadership. There were men. There were just a variety of people. And these people were having some conflicts. If you look at, towards the end of the book in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. We see there that there was conflict going on in this church, in particular between these two women. We have to assume that it says they were fellow workers with Paul, so they were leaders, they were important ministers in the body. But they were having conflict, and probably there were some people choosing sides, supporting one or the other, and so this was a major problem in the church. And I think that's the primary reason that Paul wrote this book of Philippians to deal with that conflict, to encourage them to a greater unity, to experience true community as God designed them for. So Paul wrote this book because he loved this church and he wanted them to experience that kind of true community, just like Jesus' prayer for us. Rod referred to this last week in John chapter 17, just before he went to the cross. He prayed, I pray that they that's us, he was praying for us, might be one just as we are one. He's praying to his Father. So he's talking about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the oneness that's experienced in the Godhead, God himself, the love he shared. His desire, his final prayer for us, for you and me, is that we might be one. We might experience that kind of community, that kind of unity together. So the theme of this book is living in gospel-centered community, as our banner says. Living in gospel-centered community. But how do we get there? Where does true biblical community begin? Especially when you're having conflict. How do we get there? That's our question. And my question for you as we think about this is, where would you start? If you were leading a growth group or... Involved in leadership in a church. And you knew there was some major conflict going on in the group between two people. Where would you start? You see, we're... Uh, in America, we are doers, right? So we would tend to, I think, we would think, All right, well, let's get a mediator and let's sit down together and let's work this through. Or let's teach some communication techniques or conflict resolution Let's bring in an expert. Let's sit down and talk. Let's work this through, okay? And we'll fix it. Interesting that Paul does challenge them at the end of the book to live in harmony, but he doesn't begin there. In fact, he does a lot of things before he gets there. Where he begins is this way. Verse 9, And this I pray. This I pray. He begins with prayer. Paul begins with God. He begins with God. You see, true community always, always begins with God. It always begins with God. He is the one who designed it. Too often when we think, well, we just need more community here, we need more unity, we need more fellowship, our tendency is to try to organize it. Let's get people together. Let's provide a context to form small groups and let's get people in small groups and let's have luncheons where they can get to know each other and let's do other things to promote relationships so people get together and we'll try to make community happen. Now, those things aren't bad. In fact, we're doing those things around here, aren't we? We want you to sign up for small groups. We want you to sign up for luncheons. But understand that is not where community begins. That simply helps provide a context for community. But community always begins with God. Why is that? Well, because community was planned by God in the very beginning. God planned community. Do you realize that's why you and I are here? Ultimately, we're created for relationships. And so... God, before time began, existed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before any of creation happened. And there was such an incredible unity and love in the Trinity, in the Godhead, that He created us so that we could be participants in that community that He experienced the love, the incredible intimacy that he wanted to share with us. So he created us so we could be intimate with him and with one another. Now, sin has corrupted that. But that was his plan from the beginning. That is why we're here. So God planned community, so that's why you have to begin with him. Secondly, God creates community. It's God who creates community, not us, not through our organization. How does he do that? Every time someone commits their life to Christ, he plants his very life in us. His Holy Spirit. So we can commune with Him. So we can have intimacy with Him and have a relationship with Him. And then that Spirit bonds us together. That Spirit is what unites us. Just like in your family, what unites you in your family? Well, you have the same, come from the same gene pool, right? And that crosses boundaries and therefore you and your family are One. Well, a far greater unity is created when God plants His life in us and puts the Spirit in us so that we are one. And so every Christian you meet, you have a oneness that's deeper than any other kind of oneness you could experience on earth. God creates unity by planting the Holy Spirit in us, and He creates unity by putting us in a body. Now, you may think you chose to be here this morning. You know what? God chose for you to be here. He puts you in this body. He called you to be here, to be part of this community. He's the one who created unity in the very first place. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, I like the way Paul puts it. Just a couple pages back, he says this. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Listen to this, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create unity by somehow getting together. It says we already have a unity in the Spirit. And our job is simply to preserve it, to maintain it, to encourage it what God has already created. Community is not something we create, it's something we receive as a gift. Now think about that for a minute, because this is really significant to get, because I think if we understood that that God is the one who creates unity, not us, by our choice to join a group or whatever, then it would change the way we approach getting together as believers, I think. How we tend to approach it, many of us, is we come into a group, small group, large group, Sunday morning, whatever, and we come in and we, we have this kind of attitude, well, let's see how it goes today, let's see how many people talk to me, and I wonder if they're going to be nice, and if this is a warm church or not a warm church, and we're, is the teaching going to be good, etc., and we're evaluating and we're judging because we think, okay, I want to see what kind of community this is. But if you understand that community is something that God designed, He creates, it's His work, not ours, then I think you'd walk in with a different attitude. You'd walk in to whatever group it is, whatever community, with an attitude of, Lord, thank you for these people. Thank you that we are one in you. Lord, help me know how to love these people that you have placed in my life. Thank you for the fellowship we have together. Now, isn't that a different attitude? And it's all because you understand that this is something that's a gift from God. All community, Christian community, is a gift from God. It's not something we create. God planned community. God creates community. And not only that, God sustains community. How can we get along? How can we work through issues, forgive, grow together in Christ, Only, only by him working in us, by him leading us to forgive, by his love flowing through us to one another, because we will experience conflict and struggle because we're still fleshly, right? We're still sinful. That's that's just part of people getting together. But God is the one who sustains and allows us to go on and learn to love and forbear and forgive And so what that tells us is a true community will exist as each of us learns to depend on God for life, to depend on His grace together. And as we learn to look to Him rather than demanding our own way, realizing He's the one who sustains community, then we will grow in our love for one another and our community will grow. As I said, when I came to Christ, I got involved in a small church that was a split off another church. Well, a few years later, two of the key guys from each of those churches on the elder board, God began speaking to their hearts. And they eventually came together, talked together, prayed together, and God had led each of them individually on their own to humble themselves, to ask for forgiveness. And those two churches reunited and I had the opportunity to be the pastor of that church a few years later for a couple of years. And there really was a wonderful community because of these men who had submitted themselves to God. You see, if you want more community, if you want more fellowship, a deeper kind of community, it begins with God and it begins with you and I submitting ourselves to God first. Because it's his creation, he sustains it, not us. See, church community is not like joining Kiwanis Club where you decide, yeah, I want to be part of these service projects and so I'll become part of this group, I'll commit for a while and if I get tired of it, I'll leave. Being part of the community of Christ is much more like the body. And if one part of the body is not submitting to God, then the whole body hurts. My daughter, as many of you know, two and a half years ago, had a terrible accident, crushed her heel. Now, the heel is not a very visible part of the body. I haven't seen very many of your heels. Not that I look, okay, but But it's not very visible, and yet crushing her heel changed her life. One part of the body not functioning well affects every part of the body. When you realize we're all important, we're all valuable, you suddenly realize, wow, God created us together. So Paul begins with prayer. And this I pray. He turns to God first, recognizing that God is the one who creates and sustains community. And what does he pray for? And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more community begins with God and community begins with love community begins with love again not organization it begins with love God loves us and so our community is based on the fact we are all recipients of God's love together and therefore we're learning to love God back and and learning to love God One another. So Paul prays that this love in us that he's already planted in us would grow, would abound more and more. Now, the Philippians, this little church that's developed here in this little enclave, this Roman place called Philippi, had already expressed a certain amount of love. Lydia, when she came to Christ, this Greek businesswoman, she immediately took Paul and his companions into her home. Philippian jailer, when he came to Christ, he and his family, he washed and bound Paul and Silas' wounds after they had been beaten. We find from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that this poor church had gathered resources to share money and things with the church in Jerusalem that was even more poor. You see, they were already loving one another. They were already expressing love. But Paul says, you know what? I want your love to abound, (laughs) to spill over, to not be like a well that people need to kind of go and dig it out and, you know, let down the bucket and eventually... No, he wants it to be like a spring that's just bubbling over so people can drink of that. And not only just to abound, but to abound more and more. Well, to understand this, we need to talk a little bit about what love is. What is love? Here's a definition I got out of the dictionary Love, to feel tender affection or desire for someone or something. Now, note the key parts of that to feel tender affection for someone or something. So, it's very appropriate with the English word love to say, I love pizza. I love my dog. I love my wife. Hopefully not all in the same way, okay? (laughs) But that's appropriate because we only have one word for love. But in Greek, there are four words for love. Three main ones in the New Testament. One is eros, which is romantic love, which is appropriate in a marriage. Philos which is a brotherly kind of affection, a family affection or affection you might have for a friend. And agape, which is God's love for us, which is a unique word that only Christians can live out. You need to understand that. And that's the word that's used here. There is a Christian kind of love that's unique. Why? Because God is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He is agape, that's the word there, and that's what he calls us to. So he calls us, even in Christian marriage, to not express just eros, romantic love, but in particular to one another to express agape, this Christian kind of love that's different than anything you can see in the world. It's unique. Agape love. Husbands, agape your your wives as Christ agaped the church. That's Ephesians 5. So that's the love that we're talking about here. That's what creates community. That's where community begins is agape love, a kind of love that is supernatural, that only God can produce. And what are some characteristics of this agape love that we see in this prayer of Paul's? Well, first of all, that it's growing. Agape love is growing. This I pray that your love, your agape, may abound still more and more. Again, it's meant to spill over. Love is something that grows over time. And this tells you right from the beginning, it's not a feeling. True Christian love is not a feeling. Because feelings come and go, don't they? And they don't tend to grow more intense over time. And the fact that it's growing makes it very different from how the world thinks about love because the world thinks about love is is you know you're either in love or you're out of love. Like the old Gordon Lightfoot song, I don't know where we went wrong, the feeling's gone and I just can't get it back. So see you later, baby. I mean, essentially, that's the attitude of the world, right? Because it's romantic love, and they don't understand true Christian biblical love, something that can grow and grow and grow over time. Why? Because true Christian love is an overflow of God's love for us. And it overflows to your spouse and to other people in the body of Christ and even to non-Christians. In my marriage, I've been married 29 years now, I can honestly say I love Jeannie more than I did when we first married. Now, do I have as intense of feelings of infatuation and romantic love? Well, not as often. But I honestly believe I love her more because I've learned to care for her and appreciate her and delight in her so much more than I did then. So much of my love then was self-centered. And I'm not saying I'm there. I've got a long ways to go, but, but I've learned, I think, to give my life away for her sake in ways that I never did early in our marriage. You see, true Christian love can grow and grow over time. And now our love is much more satisfying and real than it ever was then. So agape love is growing. Secondly, agape love... Is wise. It takes wisdom. Notice what Paul says. He says, I pray your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment or insight, depth of insight, the NIV says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Agape love is to be expressed in knowledge and discernment. Now, again, the world would say, well, Hey, if you feel loved, then you just sort of express that. You do random acts of kindness. You just love people and whatever. But Paul says, no, true biblical love, Christian love, needs to be guided by knowledge and discernment, knowledge and insight. You see, true Christian love is more like a missile that has a guidance system and needs to be directed to the right purposes. That's how love needs to be expressed in a marriage and in the body of Christ. Why is that? Why do we need knowledge and insight? Why do we need knowledge ultimately of God and His Word and of other people to love them well? Well, just let me give you some examples of where we need insight. Your son is 15 and he just got into trouble at school. What's the loving thing to do? Do you support him before the administration? Or do you back off and let him experience the consequences of his choices? What's the loving thing to do? You found out your husband had lunch with another woman and hid it from you. And when you talked to him about it, he said, oh, you're making way too big a deal about this. How do you love your husband at that point? What's the loving thing to do? Do you back off? Do you get friends involved? Do you talk to your pastor? How how do you love your husband at that point? You're in college and you caught your roommate looking at porn. How do you love him at that point? Unplug his computer? (laughs) Confront him? What do you do? What's the loving thing to do? You see, it's not always easy. It's not always obvious what the loving thing to do is. A friend of yours at school is making some bad choices and you found out they cheated on a test. How do you love them? Do you turn them in? Do you talk to them? What if they deny it? All I'm saying, and, and we, could, we could list a thousand scenarios and more, is that love is not easy, is it? It takes knowledge and discernment, insight, depth of insight, to be able to really love well, We need to be guided. What kind of knowledge? Knowledge of God. Knowledge of His Word. you, you got to be in... If you're going to love well, folks, you've got to be reading His Word because that's how God speaks to you and teaches you and changes your thinking. That's how He wants to, to love you and encourage you with truth. And the second word here is kind of interesting. This word insight is really a word perception. It's... it's Through the senses, getting to know someone or something well. And I think what he's saying is you have to have a knowledge of God and a knowledge of the other person if you are going to love them well. You need to understand what makes them tick. You need to understand their strengths and weaknesses if you are really going to love that person well. You can love people better the better you know them. Let me give you an example again from my marriage. Early years of my marriage, I thought, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm committed to this. I'm going to love Jeannie well. And I was real involved in serving a lot around the house, helping with the kids, cleaning dishes, whatever, you know, and I was put a lot of energy into that. And it was a number of years later when we finally got exposed to a book that a number of you have read, The Five Love Languages, that. I finally understood that Jeannie's primary love language is quality time. It always kind of was weird to me that I was doing all these things and she didn't seem to appreciate them all that much. But when I realized her love language is quality time and I got to know her better, I realized just being together, hanging out together is what really makes her feel loved. And what was so great about that is I didn't have to help her in the house ever again. It was awesome. No. Not true, but <laughs> but I did begin to put my energy in another direction. You see, when you know somebody, you understand their heart, you're able to love them better. True love, agape love, Christian love, takes knowledge and insight so that you can discern what's best. You can approve the things that are excellent so you can make the better choice to really love well. So agape love is wise and agape love is also fruitful. That is, it must have an impact. It must have an impact. But I want you to notice really carefully what Paul prays for in that. So that you may approve the things that are excellent, verse 10, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. He said I want you to love well. I want it to abound so that you might grow in righteousness. You see see I would expect Paul to say so that the other person will really experience God's love. Will really be led to grow. Well, you know, the impact on the other person. Paul doesn't even mention that. He says, I want your love to abound so that you will grow. You will grow in righteousness. You will become more like Jesus. And there's a word here that he uses that is a word that means this whole idea of blameless. It's a word that's really used to describe holding a diamond up to the light, up to the sun, and seeing absolutely no impurities in it. You see, we get confused. We think that Okay, my job as a Christian is to work hard to become more like Jesus and get out the impurities of my life, okay? And so I need to grow to become more blameless, and we put our energy into that. And believe me, folks, it doesn't work. It doesn't. We can't change ourselves. But he says if you put your energy into loving others, giving your life away, you will be changed. And you will become more and more like Christ. So that's the impact. You get changed because you're letting His love flow through you, and you become this kind of prism, this diamond, this glass that His love, His light, can flow through you to other people. And He washes out the impurities as you seek to love others and abound in that. Isn't that a wonderful thing? When you love others, it changes you, and you become more like Christ. That's why he calls it fruit. See, fruit isn't something you produce. It's something that God produces in you. As you step out to love, he changes you. The fruit of righteousness begins to happen. I've got a peach tree in the backyard, and every year I never know what's going to be produced. I do the same thing every year, to that tree. Some years there's a lot of peaches on it. Some years there aren't very many. This year there happened to be a ton. I've got branches breaking because they're so loaded down with fruit. But did I cause that? No. God caused it. And it's the same with our lives being changed. It's something that God does as we seek to love him and love others. We grow and change. And there's a final fruit he mentions here at the very end of his prayer To the glory and praise of God. Do you realize when you grow in loving other people, ultimately what happens, the final result, is that God gets glorified. How does that happen? Because this kind of love, this agape love, is something that is supernatural. And when you choose to let him love others through you, make that your prayer. Lord, love this person through me. I don't know how to do it myself, but you love them through me. Love my spouse Love the others in my growth group. Love the others in church on Sunday morning. Through me, I make myself available to you. God gets glorified because people around begin to say, wow, God is amazing. He took, he's a powerful, loving, amazing God because he took that person who's pretty selfish in themselves and he's loving me through them. And God gets the glory. That's his design. That's his plan. Amazing thing is he can take selfish people like us and make us into lovers with growing, not together, but growing marriages, growing relationships, growing community. Paul's like a good father. It's Father's Day today. Paul's like a good father. He loves this church in Philippi. He longs for this church to grow, and most of all, he longs for God to work in them that they might truly express his love to one another. I want to challenge the fathers here this morning, and this can apply to all of us, but I want to specifically apply this to fathers. What do you want for your children? As you think about, what do I really long for for my kids? whether they're young or grown or whatever. Do you long for them to have success in school? Do you long for them to have a good career? Do you long for them to have financial security, a good family, even ministry? Well, those aren't bad things, but I think this passage is an encouragement for us. It's a challenge for us. As fathers to pray that more than anything, our children would grow in love for God and love for others. Because there's nothing more important than that. And to be honest, that's how God has led my prayer over the last few years for my own children. I pray that every day. Lord, help my kids love you and love others more. Because that's more important than any of those other things. And let me encourage you fathers as well to seek to love your children with God's love, to let Him love them through you. And pray that. Lord, love my kids through me. Love them. May they experience your goodness and your love through me. And for all of us, let's pray that we would all grow in our love for God and for others so that we would love well, so that in the end people would look at our lives, those we come in contact with wherever we are, And God would be glorified. They would say, Wow, isn't God...